0: The neurologist said like, yeah, maybe you have a little bit of Parkinsonism, but you know, you can't really say this is Parkinson's come back like next year, come back six months, come back next year. And he said, well, you know, what about like nutrition stuff? And he's like, no, no, not really. Yeah, not really. And, um, and I just, it's like, it's like, it's amazing. It's amazing to me that this is, these are physicians that are well-trained. Most of them are, I would say, are smarter than me. And they, you know, they're like, they have long training and they work with, like they have regular meetings together and and really like it's about what's, you know, can I name this diagnosis? Do you fit the category or not? And if you do, can I, by the standard of care, give you a medicine that may or may not make a difference?
1: And that was Dr. Nate Bergman of Kemper Cognitive Wellness. And in this podcast, we dive into a great conversation around cognitive health, including his own story of experiencing a tumultuous time during his residency around his own cognitive function. He shares his story, the work he's doing in the areas of mood, mind, and memory, some really cutting-edge research coming out around dementia, and some protocols that are showing some amazing improvements in cognition. So Nate started his career in medicine in the medicine of aging at Cleveland Clinic as a fellow, and then had the opportunity to work at the Center for Functional Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic with Dr. Mark Hyman as it was just beginning. He created the brain health program there, and currently is the chief scientific wellness officer at Kemper Cognitive Wellness in Rocky River, Ohio. He speaks of his personal friend and mentor, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's the author of the book, The End of Alzheimer's the brokenness of our current system of healthcare care when dealing with neurocognitive disorders. And it's likely that, that you or someone you know is affected with some type of neurocognitive disorder, such as Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's, MS, or any number of diseases in this category. Or maybe you're noticing something small that just doesn't seem right. Well, stick with me here and listen to Dr. Nate Bergman for some answers, as to how you can set the clock back on cognitive decline, start early with lifestyle changes that really make a difference, and learn about the promising research coming out around intervention. And with that, thanks for listening. See you on the other side.
2: OK, welcome, Nate. Thanks for being here. It's, it's really, this is an important conversation, and I'm excited to have you here um just to talk about all of the work that you've been doing and just Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, dementia, ADHD, ADD, all of those those really important things that you're you're working on now but I I'd, I'd also like to talk a little bit about just starting this off your own journey into this as a specialty but also functional medicine from the work that you did in medical school. So so if you want to Dip back in time a little bit and tell me how you got to where you are now. What was the the precipitating factors?
0: Well, yeah, well, because of ADHD, you may have to steer me uh, back on the road sometimes. You know, <laughs> your you, you, and I desk used to be right next to each other at the Cleveland Clinic, so you you know, yes, like you yes. get off the road. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I went back to medical school a little bit later in life, you had uh, Anna Herbst on your show also, who who kind of told a similar story. Mm-hmm. And I um, mean, it was like, uh, I thought i would be a dancer first. And then I remember um, being on this in the Second Avenue uh, dance company, like area in New York University. And, and I was like 19 years old and looking into a dance class, it was a ballet class at the time and thinking, what is the trajectory here, right? My dad, lawyer, mom's a MD. Um, and I was, you know, so I was brought up with uh, privilege professionalism. My parents really modeled, you know, the professionalism thing, oldest of six kids. And I was looking in this classroom and I was like, I all, all I could see was myself, you know, sort of peaking at 28 or 29, you know, without it if if you're lucky without an injury mm-hmm. um many people many of the dancers at the time were just sort of supporting themselves on uh unemployment or with waiting waitstaff wait jobs um in between gigs and even you know you could be in a really great company i thought maybe like paul Taylor, like a mo- modern dance company and then yeah. um yeah and then like and then what? Then I'll be, you know, like like an alcoholic, uh, smoking cigarettes, uh, teaching ballet to seven year olds in the <laughs> suburbs somewhere, you know. And that didn't and so sound appealing like, to you. I don't know. I mean, I just it just didn't. Um, that didn't uh, seem like that was supposed to be the arc of my life or something. Didn't, I yeah. guess we, we make choices, right? We make choices. So uh, then I went on on what uh, somebody later called a my Siddhartha journey. So I spent some time overseas, really. Really digging into our own um, spiritual background and practice for for a long time, you know, like seven years. You could say like a like a PhD almost in religious studies, and and really had like uh, deep experiences. And that uh, was at that during that time that I uh, got the intuition. And that's probably a story for for uh, like an off camera story, right? Like an off off recording story. But there That'd were some great. very clear moments.
2: Put a pin in that.
0: There were some very clear moments where you know like the 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 uh the medicine path was the was was probably the right um direction for me and then it was just about well which which one you know and so people so i went out to california for a while and kind of looked into naturopathic school and um acupuncture school and um even massage therapy, rolfing was, was something that I was really interested into structural reintegration. In. And
1: mm-hmm. all those things
0: made sense to me from the dance background, like sort of a deep body perspective. Right. But they were all still too, it just seemed like I would have to sell myself too much. You know, I'd have to like advertise myself too much because they
1: right.
0: somehow lacked still uh, in the eyes of the average consumer, either an awareness or, uh, you know, it was like a lack of an awareness, right? A, a legitimacy. And some of that made up on my own stuff. Uh, but certainly, um, like that, again, didn't feel like the right thing. And then, so what was kind of left was MD, DO, and even the chiropractic s- Sort of felt like the same issue as the naturopathic schools and the, ac- and the acupuncture schools.
2: Selling yourself.
0: All of which I like. You know, I wish I would continue to go to go to folks. Like there are a lot of amazing people that are doing this, as you and I both know. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, the osteopathic school made the most sense to me because they talk about the tree and nature of man and you know t- talking about the, the, the whole person uh, and um, and seemed like almost an alternative to a traditional allopathic MD school. Right. I applied to a bunch of those schools. And one MD school because my mom went there, not University of Kansas, so I, I just applied there and interviewed there. Um, but I actually chose, and I'm from Kansas City. I went to Kansas City University, which is an osteopathic school. It's been around uh, over 100 years in uh, in the Kansas City area, and that's where we did. Um, that's where we did our, our basic training. And um, I had spent a year before medical school doing drug design research at the NIH, mm-hmm. and um, met some people, and and uh, that was an influential. Woman We'll have coffee together sometimes at lunch margaret chesney she was the associate director of the deputy director of uh national center for complementary and alternative medicine mm-hmm. and i kind of sought her out while i was there because i kind of always knew that yeah i wanted to do both you know i'm doing the drug design stuff and you know site directed mutagenesis and designing uh, design, uh mu- mutations in a lab it was kind of that was interesting um you know just do the, the traditional drug design you could be did some chemistry stuff a lot of ridiculously smart people there um but uh i also knew that we wanted to i wanted to be part of this this other stream that seemed to it just seemed to resonate more with me i don't know if it's right or wrong better or worse it just seemed to be more where i i felt comfortable
2: yeah fit more with um, your core who who was the person that you sought out again i think it cut out of a... Mar-
0: margaret, margaret chesney margaret chesney okay C okay. H E S N E Y. she's done a lot of things now uh, okay. a lot of things um, right.
2: Yeah. So it it sounds like the convergence of a lot of things that that you just you know put yourself and immersed yourself in throughout the process of figuring out what you wanted to do. It reminds me of somebody else I had on the podcast, Marty Wolfson, who was in dance, and she's a functional medicine nutritionist now. Uh, very similar story um, because you know n- understanding the body as, as as a person who's interested in dance really leads you into that place of of natural um, health and holistic. Perspective of looking at the whole body.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, right. I, I mean, it, that was always kind of my my angle, and I remember because of issues that I weren't clear to me um, in myself at the time. Uh, we went we, when it came time to choosing specialty and interviews and like board testing. Remember, in medical school, you have to pass three steps of a board. Basically, Uh, the first step of these of these boards, uh, USMLE or COMLEX, are they're very high stakes tests, right? Like the the tests that you get on here will not necessarily determine where you go to residency, but certainly where you wouldn't, Mm, where you wouldn't be able to go. Okay. Uh, And I remember a a friend of mine; uh, he was a nurse that went into medical school. He's like, "Hey are you taking Adderall?" I was like, "What do you mean?" He's like, well, everybody's taking Adderall. It's like it's like an unfair advantage, right? Like, how are you not taking Adderall? Wow! Like everybody was just taking it as a sort of performance-enhancing medicine. I've seen this. I'm seeing this now in patients that are trying to get off Adderall because they don't have ADHD. Adderall is a stimulant medicine right, that's right, given right. for typically. Um, there's a few different reasons you could give it, but typically it's given for ADHD. It's very effective for ADHD. Yeah. But um. But I was like, wow, that seems. I don't. know. <laughs> That doesn't sound right you know that just doesn't sound right right and um in the meantime it was hard like medical school was hard we we're having kids you know starting to have kids and right. um and it was you know an incredible amount of hours and effort and then residency started yeah. <laughs> Residency it was like even more right even more and they had still you know they there were already residency hours restrictions but 80 hours still is a lot a lot of a lot of hours in a week mm-hmm. anybody that's worked 80 hours knows that that's a lot of hours if you're really working 80 hours yeah and um and so it was during i did internal medicine uh because I, I knew i wanted to do the geriatrics and um and my mind really started to deteriorate uh it was in like my early mid-30s and um there was like a crescendo moment for me, uh, where I had already been having issues, and it was very. Um, and I've told this story publicly um, before, but um, it was it was um, a moment where I had I had already been having issues, let's say on rounds. I was in my second year of residency um, by that time, although there were there were problems before. Uh, and I just I was really not remembering things. I mean I mean really not remembering things. Mm-hmm. And um like we would go on rounds. Like I was you know had to lead a team of junior you know, junior people that were already doctors, residents and interns, and then you had medical students, and then you I would be in charge of two teams and had to I was the main direct report to the to the main physician, the attending physician. Mm-hmm. And you know, in, in certain hospitals it's like Washington DC where interns are like residents run certain hospitals like right you know oh, yeah. some of the the doctors are nowhere to be found because mm-hmm. the residents and that's how you learn like right? that's how yeah. you that's that's sort of what makes you into what you are into and and it really is a distinguishing characteristic i think of of a, of a of a physician versus some of the people that don't uh, go through a physician training it really is there's a tremendous responsibility in those years uh, and you when you work you see a lot and um and it's that it's that It's the frequency uh, and intensity of the experience that helps you um, know how to manage people, right? Because you can read and book what to do, and then when it doesn't go right, when you push the button that you're supposed to push, you have to understand or figure out what needs to be done that's not in the book, just based on principles.
2: Yeah, but the frequency and intensity of it also can, there's a dark side to that, right?
0: Yeah. So that was happening to me. Right. So, so I, I just was forgetting stuff. We would go, I remember, I remember some clear moments, uh, although a lot of it, I forgot. Mm. Um, and probably some of it put out of my memory, Yeah. but a lot of, we forgot. Um, I just remember a couple of things, uh, that are maybe relevant or interesting. One, I remember being up on the hospital wards on the floors and I was, looking at my list of patients, I said, well, you know, why haven't we rounded on this person? Why, you know, this person was in for chest pain. We have to make sure that they're not like having some, something we have to get a cardiology team involved with quickly, right? Like they're not losing heart tissue. They're not having a heart attack basically. Okay. And um, I remember the medical student and interns that were there like, Nate, what do you mean? We, we were down in the, we were down in the ER like an hour ago. And we looked at the, we saw the patient, looked at the EKG, looked at the labs together. And I had had like, no recollection of that. Wow. And so you can't, you know, I I didn't know, I mean, I had four kids at the time. And I was, you know, still even in residency, we had a home and I was the sole breadwinner. My wife was at home with our children. And um, it, it was, all I could think of is if, if word gets out that I'm cognitively impaired or something, like I will lose my license, and I won't be able to support my family, right? Like, and and not to mention, we were, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt from medical school. Sure. Yeah. And um, it was just, it was like a lot of pressure. So really it came to a whole, like sort of a, a head, uh, when I walked in to a tire store, I was going to get uh, the, the, the tires of my wife's car changed. And he asked me for our address, just our home address. We had owned that home for two years at that point. And I, I could not pull it from my memory. I just had no clue what our home address was. Wow. And I like, I totally freaked out at that moment. I, oh, I, sure. I, I don't even remember engaging with this person. I just remember turning around, leaving the store, calling uh, the neurologist that I office that I knew from my residency. And I said, I, like, I need, I don't know what's happening I have a brain tumor. I don't know what's happening to me. Do I have a brain tumor do I have yeah. some kind? Yeah. And so I made an appointment with the neurologist, got a CAT scan in my head, no tumor. Blood tests, oh, they're normal. Mm-hmm. So I said, but well, why can't I remember stuff? He sent me to a neuropsychologist. That's so a psychologist that yeah. has specific training around um, memory and thinking and attention issues. I oh, remember, so you meet with the neuropsychologist for about an hour for an interview, and then you get about two, three hours of like a battery of tests Testing. to test your memory and, you know, different aspects of cognitive function. And I remember in the interview, this this neuropsychologist who's a nice enough guy he was good smart guy uh he said to me he said as he was asking me questions about my life he says oh it sounds like you have a lot of stress <laughs> and i just i don't that for some reason when he said that i was just like yes but we all, like, that's, we all do. Like, I'm in residency. Everybody has a lot of stress. I just right. felt like, okay.
2: That's just your like, life yeah. in general. Everybody that you were around was experiencing yeah. that. Well, maybe not everybody didn't have four kids at the time, but.
0: Yeah. But wait, what are you going to do? Like, yeah. I have four kids. I'm like, yeah. you know, life this is just what my life is. That's I mean, Right. so I'm dealing with my life. Nobody forced me to have four kids. Like, we're, yeah. we have four kids. I wanted four, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. So,
0: um, so we, so I, I noticed somehow that, that hit me and that struck me like, okay, maybe that's Maybe I just wasn't realizing, right? But I but I I hadn't yet connected the dots with memory or anything like that. So I asked, I remember asking him, because I got the at the end of the of the of the assessment, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to process all the information and put it together and you get a report. It didn't even really go over it with you. You just sort yeah, of mail yeah. you the neurologist report, and I had to figure out how to get my own copy right. um, of my test. Uh that and and it said, there are in elements of uh, consistent with uh, ADHD and anxiety. Mm. OK, fine, ADHD and anxiety. And then, so I asked the neurologist. I said, but why can't I remember anything? Yeah. What do those have to do with memory? Like I, nobody, nobody told me that. Like nobody could, and it's sort of, well, I don't know. You know, like there wasn't a clear, and then I, you, you look in the literature, it's like all of that's clear. Yes. But no but it
2: But nobody was talking minute, about that as right. a as a
0: piece yeah, of that part. was my my problem was memory loss. You know, you talk about health goals, like just, I need to be able to remember more so I can support my family, passports, take not hurt anybody. Like right. continue to help people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um
2: well when I was so working I, as a speech therapist, neuropsychology would send a lot of people to me like that, that had, you know, and now obviously with functional medicine in my world, I would have done diff- things very differently, but but a lot of young moms who were just overwhelmed with all kinds of things. And neuropsych testing comes out perfectly normal, except for, you know, some of the stress levels and things like that. And and you're right, like nobody kind of connects those pieces and says, well, here's, here's what you can do about this. But they'd send them to me and I'd think, I'm not really sure, as a speech therapist, what to do. You know, I breathe. I
0: breathe. So <laughs> that's why my, my neuropsych test wasn't completely normal, but it was. Uh, it wasn't you know, like it wasn't like Alzheimer's, something like scary, right? Like right. that, but but I was I was really really scared. Yeah. Um, uh, mostly because of you know just the the pressure of of uh, breadwinning. That was really the, the issue mm-hmm. because it wasn't that you didn't have a lot of option to, to misstep or to miss days or miss work or take time off because um you know, for, you know, all the obvious reasons.
2: So how did you figure out what you needed to do and get to a place where you could really function on a daily basis with the high level of intensity you were, you were experiencing?
0: Yeah. Well, um, so we, my wife is a, was trained as a dietitian, sort of mm-hmm. she's into the same kind of things that we are kind of a whole foods uh cooking and um we've supplemented a little bit and i mean i was i was already aware of functional medicine at that point i had met dr mark hyman who was our mm-hmm. union and i boss when we were at the clinton clinic yeah in my first year of medical school and i really thought okay that would be cool to do but i didn't know the path to do that there wasn't sort of a you can do this that and the other thing and become a functional medicine doctor
1: mm-hmm.
0: but i started taking some of their courses uh, in med school and, and in, in a residency but life was crazy you know still always having yeah. to put in 50, 60, 70, 80 plus hours a week, um, either in clinical service or in, um, or just like in studying for stuff Mm -hmm. and, um, and trying to be a a husband and father too, um, somewhere in there. And so, I mean, so we, we ate pretty well and we messed around with a bunch of different diets and, you know, keto and elimination and gap diet and, you know, kind of in, in, sort of above and beyond the way we were eating in general uh, which was typically pretty healthy Mm -hmm. and um but you know certainly too much coffee and then if you have too much coffee sometimes people are having alcohol to um to like wind down the evenings it's like a medication a lot of us use Mm -hmm. and like that cycle right is horrible Mm -hmm. that cycle is horrible and we use it to sort of prop ourselves up yeah and um and so for me it was like sleep and stress became really clear that that was like, those are the issues. So I was like, you know, exercised. Okay. I was pretty good at exercising at the world's best exerciser in those years. But like, you know, I was, I wasn't completely neglectful of that. Um, I had some, some things that I was doing on a, on a regular enough basis that I didn't think that was the big problem. Mm-hmm. But it was the sleep and stress that was that was huge to me. And sleep, you, you know, there was times you just, if I'm sleeping in a hospital, and call, like call, you just can't do that that much about the sleep. Yeah. Um, but the stress piece, like discovering me- like meditation mm. and then just becoming aware that sleep was a huge input in memory and mood, mood regulation. Right. Uh, and, and sort of the, uh, having the ability of the, for the brain to, to organize itself like it needs to, were two big, big help. Yeah. Right. Um, I took Ritalin for three or four months at the time
1: mm-hmm.
0: um to get through boards. Like it was the end of my third year of residency moving into um my fellowship. And um I went from the lowest, like the eighth percentile. Um, I was on like some remediation board. Our residency had never had a a resident go from a less than the tenth percentile, so the the lowest ten percent or under, on the every year we had a mock board exam. It's like an eight hour, nine hours. It was a like horrible test. It was just eight or nine hours of multiple choice questions. My gosh, And um, torturous. Oh, it was horrible. And um, and then I, you know, on the I passed boards on the first time. It an eighty eighth percentile. So we it was really um it was really kind of amazing. We had a lot of good people on my residency. My program director Dave Woldridge was amazing, and. Um, And so we had, we just, we had a, we had a good good group there in Kansas city. And um, yeah.
2: From, from looking at the meditation, the stress perspective, um, adding in Ritalin for a short period of time, that kind of got you to a place where you could kind of piece it together for that, that bit of time Mm. and actually become successful and, and utilize what you already had in your brain, right? It wasn't gone. It was there. It just wasn't accessible.
0: Right. And we supplemented with some fish oil, some magnesium, vitamin D, some basic things.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I messed around with probiotics for a while, which, you know, different feelings about probiotics, but yeah, there's mm-hmm. like a, it's like just trying to figure out what you're missing. And, and a lot of times like it's you would start with the things that are the least uh, costly, uh, which your lifestyle typically, uh, right. but they're the hardest things for people, as you know, uh, to, 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 to stay consistent with. So the food we eat, the way we handle stress and and how we develop resilience uh, our sleep both from a, a timing and a sort of a duration and a, and a quality standpoint
2: right and, and
0: then uh, exercise you know movement and embodiment i would add to that you know, and it's really embodiment
2: that that word resilience i remember when um you and i worked together and we were talking about the um the the adverse childhood experience score and i thought yeah. well, why don't we give the resilience test too, so that people don't feel like, oh, you know, I got a five on this. that's that's a problem. but but there's there are things that you can do to kind of look at the resilience that you have in your life for some of those things, even if you've experienced um, traumatic things. And I'm kind of jumping the the gun here a little bit, but even talking just about the lifestyle. so so kind of bringing it full circle, you you moved yourself into a place where you realized, okay, these are the factors from the training that you'd been interested in through functional medicine, as well as your own experience, here's what I can do to kind of change what I'm doing in my own life. And then that became, but you said you were interested in geriatrics even before that. So yeah. where did that interest come from? And when did you decide that those two things needed to come together and that was gonna be your, your path into functional medicine? Yeah. Well, I
0: remember asking Lori Hoffman and who is the, the CEO of the, yeah institute for functional medicine at the time even when i was in medical school and the residency said I, you know I'm, I'm angling for geriatrics is anybody doing geriatrics although that's kind of a bad word you know like successful aging might be a better word just to say or something like right uh, an interest in aging the aging brain and body somehow is, sometimes when i give talks that's how they introduce you know he's a, he's an interest in in a, the aging brain and, and body mm-hmm. um the I just was. I just always was. It was a natural affinity. I can't explain it. It was sort of inborn. Um, we yeah. used to visit like nursing homes and assisted livings growing up, and I just I was comfortable there. A lot of people, oh, I didn't like the smell. I don't. I just I liked the people. They were interesting people. They were cool people. Like yeah. they had amazing stories, and they seemed very like non-judgmental and just sort of happy to see us. You know, it was good.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I would agree that that was the bulk of my career too. So I I, I like that population. And so, yeah, nobody was really doing much. Uh, Dr. Bredesen, definitely, who was a mentor of yours, right? So, who wrote the yeah. Alzheimer's?
0: So, so this was a uh, this was just um, kind of a stroke of, you call it luck or good fortune or hand of God or you know, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Right. Um, I, I I happened to um, I happened to match for a fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, and I moved from Kansas City and my plan was to be there for one year and we i had a plan to go back and take over one of my uh, or be a partner in one of my mentor's practices who was like a vice president of the hospital system there and he had this very fancy practice and um i was going to be able to do some of the functional medicine stuff a little bit on the side but you know and just do traditional geriatrics and and, and grind uh, enough so that we could you know keep the doors open and, yeah. and keep the lights on kind of thing and um Early in that first year of fellowship, um, I had to, I, I heard that the Cleveland Clinic was starting a center for functional medicine. I actually heard about it from LinkedIn, Jane Murray, one of another. Uh, yeah. So I, when I changed my my LinkedIn status to from resident at the University of Missouri in Kent City uh, to Cleveland Clinic, uh, somebody pinged me and said, oh, maybe you'll find out or be part of that the Cleveland Clinic Center for Function Medicine. I was like, there's no center for functional medicine here. I'm here. There's no, this was like August, you know, there's no center for functional medicine here. And I started looking and there's like Mark Hyman, uh, who was the director at, at the time. He was he was giving grand rounds there and, you know, and I was just like, wow, this maybe is really happening. Yeah. And around the same time uh, in September of 2014, this was 2014, 2015, my fellowship year, um, Dale Bredesen published his first paper in the journal Aging called The Reversal of Cognitive Decline mm. in Patients. And, and when I saw that, this was like, these were older folks that were at risk or in the throes of cognitive impairment, mostly Alzheimer's type. Mm-hmm. You know, I still get chills when I'm thinking about it even now. Like, I saw this paper, and I'm in this, in Cleveland, and I was like, this is what I want to do when I grow up, yeah. right? like. Seven months from now.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, um, and you know, we had all this, I just, my wife decided she liked Cleveland better in Kansas city, find a job here, that kind of thing. We were going to do, a um, our own clinic. I was going to work in geriatrics part-time and then we we're going to develop our own clinic. And I had the software company that was organized, had to organize themselves around Dr. Dale Bredesen's book, who, I mean, his work who had eventually wrote a few years later, the end of Alzheimer's was a neurologist pretty well known. Yeah, And, um, and I, I was looking for someone to kind of to hire me uh, to do this. And I, 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 I emailed everyone: uh, Mike R- uh, Roizen and uh, Toby Cosgrove, who's the CEO of the of the Clinic. I'm like this fellow, you know, this fellow. I said, Does anybody want to hire me to do this once yeah. a once a, once a once a week? Um, a few others, and um, nobody answered me. Actually, Mike Roizen answered me, and I went and, and, and interviewed with him, and, uh, and you know, they offered me a, a, some work. And, but I, I really wanted to focus on the brain stuff and their stuff uh, in, in addition to the geriatrics we were doing. Right. Um, and uh, long story short, eventually three months before fellowship was supposed to end like April of 2015, my wife was going to help me develop in this practice. And um, we found out she was pregnant and I was like, you know, that was maybe the first panic attack I had in my oh, life. Oh, no. She was in another city. She was actually at my parents' house for, for a holiday. Oh. And um, I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what, like, like this is three months away. You know, we can't launch. When I, we can't, you know, she's obviously not going to be able to work yeah. um, like we thought she was going to be able to. And um, life, like, plans were having to change fast. And at the round, the same time, again, just sort of um, very, very good fortune, I was Patrick Hanaway who was the medical director at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine that had been open for like 5 6 months at the time he also became aware of Dale Redden's work yeah two or three months after i had emailed them about it
1: oh, okay uh, um okay.
0: yeah but i mean i know that they were aware of presence work beforehand i'm right, just saying right. that you know just saying, i'm just taking credit for something <laughs> that probably shouldn't take credit for. well you, you pushed so, the ball forward right right what it was just another that? it was another notch to say hey you know why am i you know why are they getting uh everybody's alerting them about this mm-hmm. and um mark hyman all of a sudden i got a text from mark hyman he said hey Dave, this is mark hyman Do you remember me and i had done a little bit of work for him in um in medical school, I just done some uh, some putting together some journals and paper hours for him to write write something, and um, and he's like, "Why don't you come for dinner with me and you know talk about a job?" And long story short, I ended up working at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine to like develop their brain health program there, and it was like, wow, you know, I just never and that sort of launched launched everything uh, and accelerated everything, and you know, the, the time I spent there was amazing. It was intense, um, and it was uh, like I I couldn't at at this point. I couldn't imagine being able to do what we're doing now Mm -hmm. without that time. Mm -hmm. It was really a just a a blessing of a time. Met you, Karen. You know, like a lot of a lot of good people. Like there was it was really some some amazing people.
2: Well, it, it was for me too, and I think it it just sounds like you know all of these things come together in hindsight as you look at all of them. You know layering on top of each other they were just at the right time at the right place and and really you set yourself up for all of that based on the work and the interest that you had in reaching out and and so you i mean you you inspired me so much at the clinic and all of the work that you did there was i mean i just was happy to to hear every time you came back from a a patient interview and and a, a you know another appointment where someone was making some progress and, and you were just super excited about it. It's just from a perspective of what I looked at as a speech therapist and felt like, wow, I don't know that I'm really doing very much to make people's lives better. Maybe the interaction, the communication, the conversation, helping families understand how to communicate with someone who has dementia a little bit more, that was probably effective. But as far as like like making things better, not so much. And when you hear that that you can have some reversal and and bring people back like three and four years from where their diagnosis is is really amazing so so let's kind of let's move into what you're doing now and and what you know kemper cognitive wellness is about and and what you see as maybe the most effective things that that people are doing um that you see on a daily basis right
0: yeah, yeah. So thank you for asking. So I'm now the chief scientific wellness officer and the you know the main physician at at uh, uh, the only physician at Kemper Cognitive Wellness right now. I like uh, that. So we're in, we're in Cleveland, uh, we're in Rocky River, Ohio, and um, really we're there to assist anybody that's having an issue of mood, mind, memory. So we've sort of stuck with the um, the, the neuro theme. There's a bit of you know psychiatry involves a bit of neuro and then there's a lot of you know a lot of standard internal medicine i mean most of it's internal medicine geriatrics functional medicine mm-hmm. and um, so what we kind of got known for and what the kempers were known for they run some assisted livings and um, first and foremost i think most importantly is getting the word out that something can be done about <sighs> yeah. cognitive impairment
2: absolutely right? absolutely which you know Not enough people know, which is exactly why, first of all, I started the podcast to do functional medicine stuff, but this importantly, um, people think that, you know, well, I think the medical, the traditional medical community lets people think that, okay, we've got maybe a medication that probably isn't very effective at all, um, but that's about all we can do for you. So, right, like, get the word out.
0: So I have I could talk for three hours about just just what you said right now. I I can tell you a story from yesterday, not even a patient, but a phone call from a a friend of mine's uh, father who's who's a physician, and I can tell you that in a few minutes if you want. But just to uh, finish the, the, the 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 sub point on that, there's something you can do. The key is that the earlier you do something, the more likely you are to have an impact. Yeah. Right. And this is the, the, what you just said is is to me is a a part of the brokenness of the system Mm -hmm. in neurodegenerative disease. So by neurodegenerative disease, I mean, Alzheimer's, I mean, Parkinson's, I mean, uh, Lewy body dementia, even some kind of vascular dementia, uh, frontal temporal dementia, Mm -hmm. MS, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, all of these things. These are all sort of neurodegenerative diseases. There are others, but those are kind of the the, the big ones. And uh, Alzheimer's was my you know the, the the first real deep dive we had done, and um, there's this i the, the the standard is to just wait, right? Is to just right. wait until we can confirm, right? Be, be, partly because there aren't really effective medications, and still it's surprise it's, it's almost surprising to me because it's just not supported by the literature anymore. But the 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 standard of care is to just Wait, right. And until we can confirm a diagnosis, I will tell you this story now that that happened yesterday. I'm on the phone. I'm on the phone with an hour for this gentleman. Amazing guy, cool family. Uh, He's a physician. His son's a physician. Another son's brilliant mathematician. Uh, uh, Wife, his wife is a PhD creating evidence-based guidelines but sort of open to the concepts of functional medicine but we're all myself included a little bit still skeptical of some of the claims and hype in the functional medicine world and I very much put myself in the sort of functional medicine skeptic world and people are like what do you mean you do functional (laughs) medicine but what you do what you mean say more about that later but this story so this is a physician he's he's also an epidemiologist and um and he got covid Oh, wow he has a uh, parkinson's runs in his family okay. uh, uh and um when he got co- he had probable covid he got it in in, in right at the beginning uh, of when it became our awareness you know last in 2020 uh in the winter in 2020 so that we didn't have good tests but he had all the excuse me he had all the classic symptoms okay. uh, of uh, of covid um and he had really bad cognitive stuff afterwards. And then in the summer, he started developing some weird things with his walking gait, okay. which is classic Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a few other things as well. Um, and he went to see a neurologist and the neurologist, you know, who I know, who's a, who's a specialist in movement mm-hmm. disorders. So Parkinson's and things like Parkinson's and the neurologist said, like, maybe you have a little bit of parkinsonism but you know you can't really say this is parkinson's come back like next year come back six months come back next year
2: heartbreaking
0: and he said well you know what about like nutrition stuff and he's like
2: well no
0: not really yeah not really and um wow Wow. and i just it's like it's like it's amazing it's amazing to me that this is these are physicians that are well trained most of them are i would say are smarter than me and they you know they're like they have long training and they work with like they have regular meetings together and, and really like it's about what's you know can i name this diagnosis do you fit the category or not mm-hmm. and if you do can i by the standard of care give you a medicine mm-hmm. that may or may not make a difference
2: well that's what you're saying the standard of care right like that's oh, that's God. the problem and and also you know there's research to support the idea that there are other ways of getting at this. Like Parkinson's can be very much connected to toxins in the environment, chemical exposures, all of that. Yeah, and
0: that's not controversial. No, that's not
2: controversial at all, which always That's
0: made. like American Academy of Neurology, right? Those right. are the, the guidelines, right? Those are in the so guidelines. So
2: what's the disconnect? Why, if that is verifiable in research through a major academy in medicine, what is the disconnect between neurologists and, and just conventional allopathic medicine? What's the disconnect in looking at some of those things?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, as you know, is, is the model, right? The model like this, the, the physicians there and the physicians really everywhere, um, we work in a system that is, overly commodified. It is what it is. That's how it is, right? So it's slots. It's like, it's like a modern day factory. You're as a physician, as a speech therapist, as a health, you know, no matter kind of where you are, if you're in a specialty that has to sort of talk to someone, think about it, order some tests, and either recommend a procedure, a medicine, or a surgery, mm-hmm. like you don't have a lot of time, A, to, to sort through someone's story. I mean, I spoke to this guy for an hour yesterday. You know, there's very few people that he's seen along the way. He's been sent to all kinds of people. Uh, and very few people have even been able to spend an hour of time with him, right? right? Because they're so it's not their fault. It's not that's the thing, it's not physicians' fault, it's not a speech therapist's fault, it's not a nurse practitioner's fault. Like it's just they're just this is how it has to go. Like you have to do this, like that's the only way to make money. And to answer your question directly, yeah. there isn't a context say, oh, you know, what are the other things going in your life? Maybe you could do like the the goal is where's the random, where's the multicenter randomized control trial that says this will help, this will work because then insurance will pay for it. So that you have a lot of levels. right? So there's a payment issue, there's a spending time issue. and th- But the thing that gets me there, the, those are not even the, the two biggest issues. The two biggest issues to me are one that they waved off the notion that nutrition was important.
2: Right, right, right. Like yes.
0: I can't even, it's just, it just boggles my mind.
2: Well, because first of all, nutrition and some of the lifestyle changes do not cost a lot of money. You don't have to worry about insurance paying for it. And a physician mm-hmm. could have five minutes to say, you know, why don't you look into this around your nutrition? And why don't you look into this around your sleep? Like get a sleep study, mm-hmm. see if that's that's an issue for you. I don't think it takes a lot of time. And I, that's where I, I sort of asked that question. Like I understand in the bigger complex of medical care, that there is this constraint with money and time, and this is how the structure works. But I also think that there, it, it, is, it can be embedded into those things, even in small amounts. That's what Dr. Herbst was talking about, right? It's yeah, yeah. functional medicine and primary care. It, So I get a little like passionate about that because I think, darn it, we know some things that could really help people. And if you started a little earlier and didn't tell people, let's just wait a year and see what happens in a year. You don't have a year to wait.
0: All right. So that's the other piece that's super critical, which is time is brain in the sense of neurology. Time is health. Like you, it's, it, you wouldn't, if you're having a problem with your car or if you've retired and you're having a spend down, you'd say, well, we'll just wait. We'll just wait. We'll just wait. Because the, my experience so far is that the, the longer people wait to deal with memory issues, Parkinson's symptoms, Alzheimer's type symptoms. The harder it is to have any kind of improvement. So to so, well, we'll just wait. And if you get worse, then I'll be able to tell you you have Parkinson's. What? I
2: mean, that's, <laughs> well, that's, so do
0: that's you that's see that the happen. problem of that? Like yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, and I defend, think to be fair and to defend these, these these the doctors and the nurse practitioners and the healthcare, but it's not. That's that is how we teach medicine. That is yeah. how you're yeah. trained. Like yeah. because the goal is do you have, people are wanting to know, do I have this diagnosis? So let's say he doesn't have Parkinson's, but he has Parkinsonism and it's ruining his life or it's disrupting his life. Like then what? Well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You know, then they'll say, go to functional medicine, but why not go to functional medicine a year ago?
2: Exactly. Well, and, and the work that you're doing to help people understand this and get the word out is really important because I think once you once you have that information, I think for most people and, and physicians included, like most of them go into it because they care about people, they want to help people, they don't want people to be sick and not not healthy, it's it becomes a moral imperative. Once you understand that, the fatigue of not doing that really eats away at you. So so the more we get this information out there, the more that traditional healthcare model has to start to shift in some way. Because you can't go on day to day, not offering things to people that actually are inexpensive and work, you know, you just can't not do it. And if you need yeah, the information.
0: Th- this is true. So here's the other, here's the other couple of things that I would say to respond to what you're saying. And I can just use the conversation I had with this gentleman yesterday.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and there's a highly educated person and he's really trying not to be his own doctor, but he is. Like an advocate, and his wife writes. She was part of writing evidence-based guidelines, reviewing an evidence national-level guidelines for her um, for her specialty in medicine, mm-hmm. and um, and like they're just like, what do you like? It doesn't make sense to them. Wait, but the person that knows, you know, who has the magic wand to to sort of pronounce the diagnosis or not, is sort of saying, well, you know, whatever, you know. And it's it's so nonchalant. In the meantime, like this guy is advancing in symptoms and, you know, like he's smart, positive guy, but like, you know, he's right. freaking out. Right. So, um, so the, so the, the, the arc thing is really important. And then we get into nomenclature or how we, the words we use to describe things, especially in neurodegenerative diseases. Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, so we had a podcast evolving past Alzheimer's and we went to brand it We we were sort of asking around in general people when they said Alzheimer's what comes to mind and it's like what comes to mind is someone I think I said this to you before someone like in a nursing home with their tongue sticking out maybe in you know in a in a wheelchair wall just being sort of neglected and just completely completely out of it obtunded and uh, disoriented and and that's like someone's picture of Alzheimer's yeah. But you or I could have the changes in our brain of Alzheimer's because it starts early, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, right. It starts early. And, <clears throat> and excuse me. people who have this stuff that run in their family, when they're 50 years old, they're 55 years old, they're six years old, and they forget a word, or they can't remember what they're saying. They think, oh my God, it's Alzheimer's. Well, it may be. It may be the beginning of Alzheimer's, but it doesn't mean that you have to be in the nursing home confused and completely disoriented. So right. Here's the thing those people will go to a neurologist, they go to their primary care doctor, and they'll say, Hey, I'm worried mm-hmm. something's wrong, something's mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And well, you know, we call and then we, we wave our hands at things, so we call them the worried well. Yes, we're the worried well because why? Because you we, we did our tests, even though we all know that the tests aren't picking up
1: mm-hmm.
0: subtle things, especially if people who have more education kind of figure out the tests well. And lo and behold. If someone gets really, really sick, you know what we call that? The first stage of that, we call that mild cognitive impairment.
2: Right, right, right. Which is Which much is more than profound mild.
0: Profound brain loss, yeah. profound brain damage. Yeah. we have a mild. Oh, it's not so bad. Mild cognitive impairment.
2: Right, right. I know. I mild just...
0: cognitive impairment. That's like stage three cancer. That's like advancing metastatic brain disease, right?
2: Well, and I listened to your your podcast with Doctor Bredesen and Doctor. Um, Whoops. Was... Yeah, Catch yeah. oops. Yeah. oops. Um, where they, they talk about that. You guys talk about that specifically, that that, that is a really um, misleading way of characterizing any cognitive deficit, but but that research is really amazing. So yeah. maybe tell me a little bit about that research because it's it's got some components to it that I think people could latch onto.
0: Yeah. So, um, so Dale Brezin, who's a non-practicing neurologist, brilliant guy, um, was sort of part of a the mainstream, if you will, really a, a thought leader, uh, you know, chair of the UCLA department, you know, the department of uh, uh, like their Alzheimer's program, a um, founding president and CEO of, of uh, a place called the Buck Institute on Aging, which is a public private partnership up in Northern California, really cool place doing some really, really interesting work on the mechanisms of disease and have contributed a lot of regional contributions to all the scientists they support. So I've been up there and it's a, it's a sort of a beautiful, really, really neat place. Um, you know, Dale was with two Nobel prize winners in his training and his postdoc training. So he's, he's one of the smarter people I've yes. been, I've had the good fortune of interacting with mm-hmm. and, um, and, and his wife's also a physician has always sort of been interested in the integrative functional medicine stuff. And Dale will tell you the story. If you haven't heard him say, no, he's sort of always to kind of poo his wife and say, okay, well, yeah, we all, it's nice to talk about diet, exercise, street stress, those types of things, but the. He was a drug guy, right? He was always trying to find out what's the drug mm-hmm. that's going to help uh, Alzheimer's and solve the Alzheimer's, Parkinson's dilemmas. And so he's he has this, this sort of immense, immense library of knowledge about mechanisms of disease and all you know all of these neuro neuro uh, degenerative diseases we mentioned earlier, Alzheimer's and Lou Gehrig's and Parkinson's, etc. And so, but we, what he was positing, what he was theorizing in the in his lab was that okay, when you look at all of the things that drive Alzheimer's specifically. It's like many of the things his wife was talking about. And oh, by the way, the hormones are important. Oh, toxins seem to be important. Oh, mitochondria seem to be important. It's like, and he starts to look at like what functional medicine is talking about. He's like, wow, maybe there's some something here, right? And so he put together sort of a a hypothesis, which is we have to agree and, 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 and say now this is still in the realm of a hypothesis that's... Starting to advance to to sort of a, a notion of a theory. So this is not a proven thing. And I've get emails all the time Dr. Dale residents proven that and it, Nothing I, proven here, right, but there's, right. I can tell you that there's there, there are there is data and there's evidence, yes, but it's not the level of evidence yet that the the neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic is going to say, Oh, hey, there's this but, but it's on it you know. Hopefully, I don't say. Hopefully, we'll see if it if it pans out. Right, we'll and see if it pans what's, out.
2: What's the harm of doing a lot of the lifestyle things, right? The, right. The lifestyle the things. Downside. There's there's
0: no harm. There are some other things that they're doing that there could potentially be a harm and have to be tested, right? And that's right. the. It's important to 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 lay that out and, and acknowledge that. Right. Right. But you're right, and the lifestyle stuff. There isn't a, a, a really a problem. And I can go back to the Parkinson's guy I was telling you about yesterday, or that I had the yesterday to 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 sort of further this point, but. The what they showed they had they had twenty five people, um, three different doctors. Uh, we've done interviews with all the doctors that were in it. Uh, Kat Tubes, who you mentioned, uh, Deborah Gordon and Ann Hathaway. They're all in sort of Northern California and Oregon. And twenty five students, twenty five patients, twenty one of them. So all of all of these all of these people that were participants had a early Alzheimer's disease or a mild cognitive impairment diagnosis. Mm-hmm right so these were all people that had very very significant amount of brain damage right and the difference basically between mild cognitive impairment and an early alzheimers is essentially alzheimer's dementia Again, there's a lot of problems with the words that we use and in, in, right. in, in the nomenclature but dementia versus mild cognitive impairment so is dementia is cognitive impairment plus some aspect of inability to be independent can't drive can't remember to take medicines can't pay bills all this stuff you know here you know, like to some aspect like if you'd go away for a couple of weeks probably wouldn't be okay on their own, right? Sure. Um, that's the sort of moving into the dementia, like an early dementia. And in a lot of these people, you wouldn't know if you just had a five minute conversation in a store, or you're checking out, you wouldn't necessarily know these people had dementia, sure. except if you if you kind of know know what you're looking for. So of these 25 people, 21 out of 25 people with this functional medicine intervention improved.
2: Improved. And improve.
0: So that's meaning. like a staggering, a staggering, uh, a staggering um, figure. Just because this is, is by definition something that's not ever supposed to get better; it's only supposed to get worse.
2: Exactly. So the improvements were things like what?
0: Yeah. So the improvements were. So you always have a problem with like usually when we show improvements on these that's kind true. of tests, it's like on cognitive tests, right? Montreal Cognitive Assessment, right, a right. CNS Vital Signs Score, um, and so those are. I don't know. You could always argue, and we used to argue in journal clubs when I was in, in, in residency and in training. Like, oh well, you can game the system. Maybe people just are, learn how to take these tests better. At that um, level, I
2: don't know that you could. Could you? I don't know.
0: I mean, theoretically, you could. I mean, if you just keep giving the people the same test over and over in a short enough period of time, they can kind of remember the words. And but they had blinded raters. They used, this, you know, so they're, they're, they 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 this this uh, experiment though it wasn't a, a, a it wasn't randomized and it, they didn't have a um, placebo group. They did have some uh, measures in there that uh, limited the the bias, meaning limited the chances that uh, the this, the group that was doing the study, the, sci- the the physicians, and the scientists that were doing the study, influenced the results. So they okay. they so they had yeah. di- they used different testing. I think the the key was uh, they used a uh, something called an AQ21, which is an Alzheimer's questionnaire based for change, and it was completed by. One of the criteria was a partner, right? So you you couldn't just do this on your own because there was a lot of pieces to this. Not an easy thing to do, which is another important thing to highlight. And so those tests, like their the the care partners saw these changes, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and to me that that's where you know that's where I sort of I tend to more believe these results,
2: right? Because
0: you know the cognitive testing you have a couple points increase, okay, that's good. You know, like we that that's that is something. I don't want to again poo poo that too much, but when you start to see when people around you start to notice a difference and an improvement, because it's so hard and it takes so long to change some of these neuro- neurodegenerative stuff, if if at all, right? Right. Uh, and you start to regain some function, life skills, reequipping people's minds, restoring function to some degree. Uh, yeah. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to to see. Yeah. Um, well, true. and they saw that in 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 in. in Twenty-one out of twenty-five people Karen. its like unbelievable to me.
2: That really is. I I would agree, having worked in that world for a long time, um, and also the 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 caregiver perception of their their changes because they've seen it from the beginning. They notice uh-huh. you know the small subtle changes that are different. Um, when when you think about so the interventions that they did, I'm, I know the list was long, um, and I know that we could say, well, what are the top five things that people should be doing, but but when you think about just the average person, and if they're noticing some of these things, um, you know there, there's definitely evidence to support this it's not you know. Dried and cut in stone, but I, I think if, if you were to talk about what are some of the things that that people could start shifting if they have noticed some of these things. What are yeah. what are your top yeah. things? I mean, sleep and stress
0: easy. for sure. Yeah, but. yeah. So, so very very simple. That's an easy. That's become now an easy question for me an to answer after asking myself this question for the last six seven years. Yeah. The the key that we've seen changes in pretty consistent with people. Uh, number one uh, is exercising with as much intensity as someone is physically capable of. So, if you can get into a higher intensity exercise. Uh, like high intensity interval training, Mm -hmm. uh, even if you're going from nothing, even just to get to moderate intensity. So meaning you're getting to a point where you can feel the fact that you're exercising, you're huffing and puffing a little bit, hard to finish sentences. The more intensity, uh, the more intense the exercise uh, and the more frequent, right? So we wanna get to near daily exercise, Mm -hmm. it it moves the needle. Like that's, I've seen that uh, consistently, especially in the mild cognitive impairment range, right? Like you'll see an improvement the problem with it is you have to do it every day. It's like taking a pill. Like you yeah. have to do it yeah. often. Uh, and it doesn't like, oh, if I just exercise for two weeks, then I, I'll I'll be good for a year. Like it's <laughs> it's something you always have to do. I mean, you know this, Karen. I know you live uh, what, yeah. you, what you're what you teaching, what you're talking about. But like it, it is, there's this expectation that when I see people, it's like, well, what do I have to do so that I could just go back to sitting on the couch and go to McDonald's and watching movies? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just tell you're me the program. Guy. Are there like, yeah, are there three like like supplements that I can take so that I can just continue mm-hmm. my life. It's yeah. just, that's not what this program was, right? It's
2: it's a lifestyle change, but it doesn't have to be like intense. You're not gonna tell people they have to run, a, you know, a Tough Mudder or, you know, a triathlon mm-hmm. or something like that. It's like, how do you work it into your everyday life where you get to doing this stuff? And I think the support particularly is important. So exercise is one and, you know, the other piece of it.
0: Exercise so so intensity of exercise so exercising with intensity so we're talking about sick people we're not talking about people that are pretty healthy that are just having a little forget these are people that have neurodegenerative disease that's set in yeah. this is like stage three stage four cancer right so these people this group needs a different kind of intervention than something so this is going to disrupt life a little bit like because that's what's happening like yeah. this is going to be a, fo- a, li- a little bit of a focus and a priority okay uh, second second thing is. Uh, nutrition. And um, what, and no, it's not everybody. um, And this probably should be done, as you know, uh, with under a guidance of someone like yourself or a nutritionist or, you know, some other kind of a doctor or healthcare provider, Um, getting into mild ketosis. So a mildly ketogenic diet, uh, you know, low alcohol, very, very low sugar, if any. um, And then you can follow your ketones probably is the best way to do it, mm-hmm. uh, either with like the finger stick, uh, like Keto-Mojo, uh, uh, yeah, Keto or uh, like there there are many ways to sort do this, uh, or you could just do the diet. Um, driving people just, I've seen, I mean, I saw six recently saw 64 year old with Alzheimer's again, crazy story and all kinds of uh, hits and insults to the to- especially toxic insults, because his work is an engineer. Um, yeah uh, I saw him improve executive, executive function. So sort of the ability to handle, he's the CEO of a company, um, handle complex conversations, run meetings, uh, his son and his wife noticed improvements within two weeks of starting ketogenic diet.
2: Wow. And that's kind of like, you know, you could do full on keto, but you're talking keto flex kind of, um, yeah, you could do the keto I mean,
0: you could start with keto flex, but I think if you really want to sort of, um, if you want to rescue brain energy and see and if you want to really it's for people that are behind the eight ball. Yeah. Um uh you and there there can be untoward side effects for the ketogenic diet. So that's it is a therapeutic diet. It's not like a diet I'd recommend, hey, go out and keto is healthy for life. It's hard to do, it's hard to sustain.
1: Exactly. And there
0: are there can be side effects. Right. Um but a ketogenic diet. And then, you know, if you're mild ketosis is, 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 is important. So, keto flex is also fine, you know, not eating before, you know, about three hours before bedtime so that the brain and body can kind of clean itself up better. Um, uh, waiting about 12 hours in between your last meal and your, your next meal um, seems to also be helpful in terms of helping the, 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 the brain and body do some cleaning up, yeah. if you will. Um, those things seem to be important in terms of generating ketones and allowing for the brain to, to sort of switch its, uh, form of energy into something that may be a little bit easier and a little bit more efficient mm-hmm. and, and restore uh, brain function for, yeah. for some people. So that's number two, um, number three. And so there's, th- these are the, really the, 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 three, three big ones. Number three is sleep and oxygenation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, like going back to this Parkinson's guy. So there are, again, we could talk about sleep for three hours, but basically yeah. the way I think about sleep is, you know, you, you, there's an efficiency score. You need enough sleep. So duration, right? Most of us need between seven and eight, seven and nine hours. Um, and if in sort of quality, than the sleep quality, right? So somebody could spend uh, eight hours in bed But they're up to the bathroom four times uh, or they're snoring or they have undiagnosed sleep apnea or they're waking up at three o'clock in the morning, can't go back to sleep. And Mm -hmm. so they're not the time in bed is not a high quality time in bed or they're not getting enough deep sleep. And so we push a lot of people to, you know, we're looking a lot for sleep apnea. And I don't know the number for sure, but I usually estimate probably about 70 percent of people that I see that have cognitive issues have some sort of like not picked up sleep issue
2: okay Um, yeah yeah it's
0: oftentimes it's sleep apnea right
2: and i don't think people really um they don't understand i think people have a perception that they sleep better than they do for the most part you know because i think our world is just sleep deprived and we just think oh this is fine you know i i you know lots of people have said i can function on four hours of sleep and i think well you can function but is it your optimal and is it really is that the yeah. best choice long term? Probably not. So, yeah. so you have p- most of your people do sleep studies and then kind of do doctor- I, don't,
0: I don't know most. I mean, I have to talk to them. We do an exam. Like you said, that oftentimes it's really helpful to have someone else who's been in the same bedroom with, uh, with the person I'm talking to because, a lot of times, especially women, uh, but even men now more and more, um, it's like they're ashamed to admit or something that they. So that they snore it's like yeah. some shameful thing yeah. and um and but snoring is not is clearly not the only uh way to pick up sleep apnea many many people that we've seen that don't snore mm-hmm. that have sleep apnea so this gentleman yesterday i was talking about who's just going through this parkinson's symptoms uh post covid um he has had years of sleep apnea mm-hmm. but that has not been treated mm-hmm. and uh, and he he told me yesterday that they did a recent sleep study and he's not only has a, an obstructive sleep apnea, but he has a central sleep apnea, which is a, probably for, again, for another kind of uh, another uh, talk, but he has a, he has a secondary kind of sleep apnea that's not primarily from oxygen not being able to get into. It has to do a little bit more with the the, the way the central nervous system is processing. And heretofore, he's not had it, treat it Mm. and you know what he told me he said well um well the sleep doctor said it was mild it was mild sleep
2: there you go let's wait till it gets really really bad then we'll do something about it it's like
0: so so then you're just fine with mild brain damage let's just mild brain damage it's fine
1: yeah it's not a big deal
0: right it's 30 years of mild brain damage it's fine it's not gonna hurt anybody right like because that's the world we like if it's not like a red light problem Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a clear fix we don't think about but what if you just are use these same ingredients are in like these toxic ingredients and in the toxins like right, or right, right. you know toxic foods or not enough exercise for years and years and years. Like that has, it takes a toll. It just does take a toll.
2: Well, I think the last thing I want to dig into, and then we're going to, you know, I know you got to go, but um, just the last couple of things, just briefly talking about the other things that can contribute to any kind of cognitive decline, maybe the toxins and mold and any of the other things that, infections that you kind of have to dig a little bit deeper for too.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, so I would say, One of the first ones is hormones Hormones. that I'm becoming more and more um, like on board with. You know, I I was trained at a time still where we were under the influence of the Women's Health Initiative, and you know, estrogen causes cancer, and don't give it to anybody. And we've swung a little bit the other way. Interesting story. Another patient from yesterday. So I saw a woman almost 80 years old, um, fiery, fiery lady, and um, she has her father. Two of her father's sis- sister's, one of her father's brothers, all with Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. right? And she's she's got Alzheimer's now. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very not willing to admit it. Very, very difficult for her to sort of accept. You know, obviously, who wouldn't? You know, who who among us would not? You know, would just sort of, oh yeah, I got Alzheimer's, no problem. Right, right. Um, But um, but you know, so it's it's hard to see this on a day to day basis, and um, and so what was interesting. So we talked for a while, talked for an hour and then, and then, you know, I sort of, I saw that she had a hysterectomy. She nor her husband could remember when she had a hysterectomy and they took out her ovaries as well.
2: Okay.
0: I said, well, do you, were you put on uh, estrogen or hormones? She said, Oh yeah, we're on hormones. And, 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 she just didn't, oh yeah, it was hormones. That was routine before 2001 when the Women's Health Initiative study came out, right. uh, sort of talking about the low association between, and there's this whole, there's a whole side story about that.
2: I know, we about, can do you know, five other podcasts, right. Nate. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah totally. Uh, and um and so the the, the interesting thing about th- this woman was she, after that, she didn't have the dates, but she said, I remember, she said, I just remember 20 years ago or something. Uh, we all of a sudden my doctor wanted me to go off the hormones and she would, was probably in her late fifties then. So still what would today be considered in a window to to be on hormones. Mm -hmm. And she just said, I didn't feel right. I just, she couldn't, she couldn't articulate exactly how I said, no, you just didn't feel the vitality. You just couldn't get as much work done brain stuff. Yeah. All of kind of all those things, right. It was hard for her to describe. And so she couldn't really find anyone to prescribe it because it was, you know, Right. It was going to be like malpractice right. to exactly. to continue people and doctors are not going to take that risk, even if it's in some cases on an individual level, like the right thing to do, mm-hmm. um, which I understand. And, um, she, she somehow found someone to take her off, uh, to start, start her back on these hormones, estrogen, at least was estrogen. And it may have been mixed with some kind of progesterone as well, a second kind of hormone. Okay. And, um, And okay, so she got her some vitality back. And then at some point, somebody took her off of it again. Mm. And when we were doing the dates, I was like, how long have you had these symptoms? And her husband was like, well, I remember we were planning for this trip. And and this was like four, four and a half years ago. That was like at the very beginning of our interview yesterday. And then uh, this is like an hour and 15, an hour and a half later, we're hearing from her just in terms of, oh, you know, I was just reading my normal list of, you know, what was your last period? And did you always say so you had a hysterectomy, you got your ovaries taken out, having this talk, conversation about hormones. Well, were you, when do you think you were taken off those hormones? And best we could come up with was five, five and a half years ago. Now we have to verify this. So this is still like, this is still fresh. So I don't want to create a story where there isn't one. Mm-hmm but that was about a year before she developed Alzheimer's symptoms.
2: Wow, yeah.
0: You know, like, so, and I've seen enough people kind of perk up and it's definitely not everybody. I mean, okay. it's definitely not everybody, um, but I've seen enough people improve with things like testosterone or estrogen, maybe sometimes from progesterone, but testosterone, estrogen in particular, uh, men and women, um, where like I, like there's there's a real signal there somewhere, there's, you know? There's the something truth happening. will be shaken out, yeah. yeah. That's it's more this, on top of, of
2: your sure. list than it ever was before.
0: Yeah, yeah. The things that are controversial, like everybody's sort of convinced that there's all this evidence that mold is creating Alzheimer's. Like I don't, I don't know if I'm fully on board with that yet. Okay, but right. because we don't have great tests, or whatever. One of the conclusions from the, my interviews with the, the three physicians that did the uh, that did this clinical trial with the the 25 people, 21 improved that we were just talking about, was that the people that did not improve. Or living in moldy homes. Okay. Right. Was well, that the only homes. factor?
2: You don't know, but it's yeah. Like I don't know,
0: but uh, sure. but there there does seem to, like toxins do seem to be more important than I would say the general world uh, um, gives it credit for. I think partly it's because we don't have great tests for it. We don't have a great way to assess uh, low level toxic exposures over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but toxins do seem to be important Uh, remediating gut stuff like gut things definitely seems to be important restoring blood flow like there's this whole connection with um idea of insufficient blood flow Uh, the and brain diseases the easiest way to improve blood flow that are low risk are a exercising with intensity b um fixing things like sleep apnea uh, and then c uh, would be food and food choices. Um, And then there's kind of a host of supplements and other tricks that you can do to, 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 to improve those. But if somebody is not exercising enough, they are not getting enough oxygen when they're sleeping. There's no amount of supplements that's going to correct for that. Right. Um, right. So, so there, there are, there are some other things. And then I think also like infections is a, is kind of an open question for me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, So I do kind of later on in a, in a, in a in an assessment, we'll look for uh, things like in, in infections that are implicated or associated with, but not clearly, in, 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 at least to me, not clearly a, a cause yet okay. of Alzheimer's. But we'll look for those, and um, and sometimes we'll go after them with uh, either herbal, sometimes uh, sometimes you know, prescription medications, depending on how clear cut the the results are. Um, that that may be contributing. So you're trying to identify as many of the contributors, and then dealing with those contributors um, in a in a in a way that's appropriate and doable for the person that's that's uh, I'm seeing. You know, yeah, patient. I
2: mean, there's there's a lot to think about. I mean, could you briefly give me like a couple of the infections that you think might be contributing or that you look for particularly?
0: Yeah. So herpes simplex virus, mm-hmm. uh, human herpes virus six. Oh. HHV-6, okay. uh, there's probably best data for those okay. um, viruses. Uh, and, and I think there's this whole like neuroborreliosis. So the idea of Lyme or a Lyme related infection, I'm, right. still, I'm still holding out some skepticism for that, but we do look for it. We do yeah. look for it yeah, and we then when, when it shows up, we have to deal with it. And um, you can't really say these people have Lyme's disease by criteria because they don't have systemic, you know, they don't necessarily having joint pain and fevers, and, you know, those are not the, and, and then the definition of chronic or persistent Lyme disease is sort of a question mark anyways, but a lot of times, a lot of times, some of these folks have, they have sort of hijacked immune systems, and that gets really complicated too, because sometimes the reason their immune systems have been hijacked is because of a toxic exposure, or it's because of Ongoing inflammation, or it's because of COVID, or it's because of you know, et cetera, et cetera. So then, figuring out why the immune system has been uh, deregulated, and then doing something about a big deal. And then we we do a lot of like looking at the brain, right? Brain like a brain map, an EEG, okay. uh, looking at it like an MRI. Like where 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 are the where are the where is the hardware or software faulty? Mm-hmm. And then how can we reroute that and make the brain, if you will. More efficient. So, um, neurofeedback stimulation, neurostimulation, transcranial direct current stimulation, transcranial alternating stimulation. Um, we're dipping our toes into photobiomodulation. We just used a sort of a higher-powered laser recently. I'm one person, um, although I'm not ready to sort of commit that to practice. Uh, that was um, sort of a friends and family under the t- guided tutelage of a mentor of mine okay. for uh, for a family member at this point. But I do think I think that um, I'm skating towards that as a future. Um, so so tools, and then I'm not even ready yet to talk about some of the stuff that we're doing with the folks in assisted living, where we're really, really, um, I'm excited about sort of the re-equipping uh, and restoring uh, minds w- for people that already have pretty, pretty bad disease, just like a day program where we're really like working with these people intensely um, and trying to keep them in their homes as happy and healthy uh, and with as much peace with the people that they're living with mm-hmm. for as long as possible. I mean, that's another thing I get the chills about. Um, Me too. Because it- Me too. Because there are some some really cool stuff that we're we're uh, we're embarking on with a little bit of pilot data that we're sitting on. We're not talking about it just yet. Oh. but um hopefully in the next six months we'll we'll have something to talk about. Oh
2: my gosh. Well Nate, I mean we have like Five, six, seven different topics we could talk about in you know, upcoming podcasts. So, I mean, I hope I can get it's the good out.
0: thing about ADHD. It's the good well
2: thing yeah, ADHD. but this is all really like groundbreaking, interesting stuff. But it's also really very tangible for people who are experiencing some of these things or have family members who are experiencing this. And it's just exciting for me to to come from the world of speech pathology for so many years of my life, and and to see there is a lot that we can do for people and and the the work that you're doing is so incredibly important and the stuff that you're doing with Kemper Um, you know I'm going to link all of the information about how to contact you and Kemper Wellness Um, and if you you know I'll ask you also to maybe send me some of the research articles that we mentioned in this podcast but but definitely I'd love to have you back on and, and dig into any one of these topics even more intensely because this has been really really helpful. Um, and I I'd, honestly, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are excited to hear about this. So, um. yeah,
0: it's 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 it's, it's, am- it's amazing. Like, those are the two the two big takeaways uh, are for sure. One, there's something you can do you right. know, when it comes to Alzheimer's, all these other things. There's something you can do. Uh, it's not it's not an immediate and automatic death sentence, uh, but it's, it's work to do something about it.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, the, the second thing that's probably just as critical is don't ignore early signs do something about it do something about it early there's 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 more you can reroute retrain and reverse if we want to use that word
1: Mm
0: -hmm. earlier the better the the longer something goes on the harder it is and the more work it is and often the more expensive it is to regain function well do something about it early
2: and on that note, true, like, like, let's get this word out there a little bit more. I, I mean, I'm hoping right. to to move this bus forward, too, because it's I right. think that's it. It's the awareness to know that there's something out there that you can do and to pay attention to what's going on with with what's happening in your life. Don't just poo poo it and move it aside and say, well, I don't have time to pay attention to that. And that's, I think, right. what I spend a lot of time helping people understand, too.
0: 100 percent. Thank you for doing what you're doing.
2: Oh, uh, Nate, thank you so much.
0: Maybe we'll have a chance to work together sometime. Oh,
2: that would be fantastic. I would absolutely love it. So I, I very much appreciate your time and the fact that you've got lots of um, kids at your house right now and you took the time yeah. to do this and it was uninterrupted. I appreciate that. So um, you'll be back again, I hope. Mm, yeah,
0: thank you. And thank you for doing what you're doing, Karen. I hope everybody appreciates what you're doing. I, I, I for one know uh, that it's everything you talk about is it's true, you're practicing what you preach. You're an amazing human being.
2: Oh, Nate, you're going to make me all teary eyed. <laughs> thank you so much.
0: Yep.
1: As always, thank you for sticking around to the end and my conversation with Nate Bergman. As he said, you know, we need to get the word out that something can be done about cognitive impairment. And we don't have to settle for waiting on a diagnosis and medications that really don't work. So, if you found this information helpful and enlightening, please share with everyone and anyone you know. You never know whose life you could change. This podcast is sponsored by Karen Bush Functional Medicine Health Coaching, changing the state of healthcare one conversation at a time. Thanks for listening, and see you on the next one.